Welcome up to Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Radio. My guest in this edition of Fangraphs Radio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Monday. His weekly Monday appearance, and he's made it in this case on a Monday. He's managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest in this program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. Baseball orthodoxy suggests that it's necessary for a pitcher to establish his fastball in order to then work with the secondary pitchers. In Game 7 of the American League Championship Series, meanwhile, Houston right-hander Lance McCullers threw 24 consecutive curveballs en route to four dominant innings of relief against the New York Yankees, a game that those Houston Astros won, which allowed them to advance to the World Series. On the one hand, it's not surprising. McCullers led all starters in curveball percentage, throwing the pitch nearly half the time this season. On the other hand, received wisdom would suggest that regardless of the quality of a pitch in a vacuum, it oughtn't be effective if thrown 24 consecutive times. I present sentiments of this nature to Dave Cameron, who then comments upon them at some length. Uh, <clears throat> furthermore, apropos of an anecdote that I present at the beginning of the program, I ask Dave Cameron, what is a situation in which the data suggests a thing to be true, and yet logic suggests that it oughtn't be? Leads to a discussion, that question, both of the protection theory, that is of a number four hitter, for example, protecting a number three hitter, and also of catcher framing, or the reason why the numbers suggest that Jose Molina should have been worth $20 million and he was paid less than one or so, or something like one or less than one. Also in this edition of the program, I asked Dave Cameron if Fangraphs Audio actually has any listeners. His response is disconcerting. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, the status is ignorance. Troubling, troubling stuff. Uh, we will move on to a conversation with Dave Cameron momentarily, but first it is both my duty and privilege to announce that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable sum. Readers of Fangraphs.com can support the great work that appears in those electronic pages, and for a slightly less reasonable sum, readers can acquire an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, both facilitating faster loading speeds and also liberating one from the distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership, available only, obviously, at Fangraphs.com. With the conclusion of which advertisement we have now also concluded the introduction. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. not be unfamiliar to you uh which is as follows are you are you aware dave cameron how sometimes uh, we will begin the um, um an edition of fangraphs audio uh well to begin an, an episode of fangraphs audio i will present to you a real life situation and ask you what in baseball is like that <coughs> i've encountered that once or twice yeah okay all right well we have uh another situation just like that dave cameron okay um <clears throat> today one of the reasons, in fact, that I had to uh, push the recording of the program back by an hour is uh, because I had to get my car inspected, a state car inspection. Um, now, I, th I think this has actually become uh, less uh, common in, across the states. And it is, I feel like maybe only, uh, I don't know, a handful of states still do this. Do, for example, you live in Oregon. Do you need to have your car inspected annually or biannually? No, but we did in North Carolina. 
You did in North Carolina. Okay, yeah. Right. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing about getting – about a car inspection is um, I've been led to believe, so far as I understand it, the data suggests that there is actually no – substantive positive effect, right? In theory, you get the cars inspected so that everyone's, I mean, I, I suppose emission standards are part of it frequently, but it's also just for safety so that everyone's cars at least meet a baseline of criteria so that they are not falling apart and all running into each other, right? Right. However, I've been led to believe, or again, as I understand it, there's no substantive data to suggest that it actually achieves that at all, Right. There's no, there are no necessarily, there are no more accidents uh, in places where car inspections aren't required. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and yet, Dave, it feels as though if everyone is required, if every car is required, required to be inspected periodically, whether it's you know annually or biannually, it feels like that should help, right? It feels like that that should make some kind of difference and add to public safety. Uh, to some degree. And so <clears throat> here's what I post to you. What in baseball is like that? What in baseball possesses no – there's no there's no data to suggest a certain, um, a certain uh, concept or a certain hypothesis, right? And yet it feels as though it should be true. You can, sure. Or if you need to, to, re, to reword it for your own purposes, Dave, that's fine too. So something that people think like that makes sense, but then you look at the data and it's like not there. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. and 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 perhaps it's because we just can't measure the thing that for which we're looking. Right. Like maybe it's just out of our reach, or maybe there's just something that seems like it should be true and isn't. I mean, I would say probably like the protection theory in baseball. Right. Like people have long said, like if you have a really good hitter hitting behind you, then the guy in front of that good hitter will get better pitches to hit. Um, this is like widely believed to be true. Um, and then you look at the data that's not true basically at all. <laughs> um, I, that one actually falls apart along, like once you think about it critically, like <clears throat> if the guy in front is hitting better than the guy is hitting better than he would otherwise, then the pitchers are choosing to put the guy on base more often for the good hitter than if they just pitched him normally. So that one, you know, like it fails the critical thinking test too, but people still believe it to be, um, a generally acceptable. In fact, actually, isn't there some data to suggest that it's that a hitter? Let's see. There's like reverse protection. If there's any sort of protection at all, isn't that true? Uh, yeah. So hitters absolutely perform better with guys on base. So if uh, you right. stick a high on base guy in front of a hitter, then you're protecting him by giving him a larger hole on the first base side to hit through, uh, because the first baseman has to hold the runner on. Uh, also, there could be some distraction effect from having a runner on, the pitcher has to pitch out of the stretch. Whatever the combination of factors are, the data is clear that getting on base in front of the hitter behind you is very good for that hitter. Um, so, you know, you could theoretically protect someone by acquiring some 450 slap hitting on base guy, but no one thinks of that as protection. In fact, that's the precise type of hitter you would think of as not offering protection. Right. You'd be like, oh, this guy can't protect anyone, but he's the one who's probably having a larger impact on his teammates. Yeah, except there, are, how many slap-hitting 450 OBP guys are there in the league at the moment? Uh, Not that many. I not guess there's peak Ichiro. I mean, he was number 450 on base guy. But, like, uh, that would kind of be the ideal of, a, like a, you know, a guy who um, – Gets on base a good amount. I mean, each row is mostly batting average and there are a lot of walks. But, you know, at his peak, he was a 400 on base percentage in a pitcher's park. 
Um, so, you know, a high on base guy with almost no power. It would be interesting to, to perform a sort of survey. Perhaps this has been done. But I know that this came about, let's see, we discussed this maybe I mean, years ago, like when Deshaun Figgins existed, right? Yeah, yeah. And Sean Figgins had a couple of these great... I think he still exists. Sure, but... right. When he existed as a player who was producing wins for a major league team. Uh, because yeah, he had some... that guy didn't exist for the last few years of the fact that he was playing baseball. <laughs> but he he had some uh, he had some really good seasons in Anaheim. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he had some really good seasons in Anaheim, um, yeah. and he was he was putting up walk rates over ten percent for a while, like fifteen or sixteen percent one year, I think. Yeah, and despite That's the like fact a tiny little guy with no power, exactly. Despite the fact yeah. that he, I, I mean, if he had. I'm sure – I think he, like, maxed out at, you know, 120-something isolated power. Like, he was not hitting home runs. But yeah. he had – I think he probably had one of the lowest outside, like, um, outside the zone swing rates, right? Out of yeah. zone swing rates. Yeah. Uh, that type of player is not very common because guys who, who don't necessarily – who aren't particularly threatening with their bat, they receive the most strikes. So they're – so if they – they don't have a chance really to, um, to sort of indulge in their their plate discipline. I mean, maybe maybe it shows up in different ways. Maybe it still exists, but I don't. I think Marco Scudero was a little bit like, especially the latter day Marco Scudero had some yeah. really strong seasons. But you wouldn't necessarily see it in huge walk rates um, again because he's getting thrown strikes. Um, but it would be interesting to do a survey of players who were somehow able to record relatively robust on base percentages despite hitting for relatively little power. Um, yeah, I mean, I wonder if this player is actually kind of going to go away in Major League Baseball to some degree now that, like, velocity has trended up to such a degree that I think when you used to throw, you know, when the average fastball in Major League Baseball was 91 or something, like, you still kind of had to work around these slap hitters just because if you throw it down the middle, they can still hit it. You know, it's 91. Anyway, basically, any of these guys can hit 91. Nowadays, like, if the average fastball is 93 or 94 or whatever, 96 so it's going to be in a few years, like, I wonder if, like, the guys like the Sean Figgins or the Marco Scudero, they can't turn that around regularly. They're not strong enough to do anything with that. So now the pitchers with their higher average velocities can just groove one. Just be like, here, whatever, it's down the middle. Hit it if you can. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if we don't see as many of those types of players succeeding in Major League Baseball going forward. Right. Or those types of players are, I mean, or they've they've sort of followed the, not, not obviously not, they've been followed the exact Jose Ramirez path because he's one of the best players in baseball this year. But <clears throat> those guys have somehow learned how to adjust their mechanics in such a way that they're able to punish those those types of pitches somehow. Yeah, I mean, there's still a minimum amount of strength. Like, you know, Billy Hamilton can change his swing all he wants. He doesn't have enough strength to hit the ball far enough to make that a justifiable strategy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't have excellent velocities for Marco Scudero or Sean Figgins, but I think they were probably more Billy Hamilton or Ben Revere than Jose Ramirez, where, like, they could they could change their swings all they want, so it wasn't really going to matter. Um, and I, I think, like, if, we, if you imported those guys, like, prime Sean Figgins in today's game, I don't know how good he'd be. Well, yeah. Or, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, certainly current Sean Higgins was uh, not really good. But even if you took the one who used to walk, like, I don't know if you can really nibble the and work the zone the way you used to. Now the guys are just like, whatever, here's 97 down the middle. Having having now, for you, having, you know, writing about baseball for some time and followed baseball for even longer than that, 
Are you? Do you ever? Do you ever wonder to yourself how Wade Boggs ever existed? Right. I mean, he had one season where he hit home runs in a real way. He hit a bunch of doubles other than that, but he never really – his power numbers were never particularly extraordinary. But he did – I mean, he he was – he controlled the hell out of the strike zone, and yeah. he made tons of contact. And he seemed to possess a kind of strikes that allowed him to at least hit uh, – you know, to, to strike, you know, ground balls well, hit a lot of line drives. Yeah, I mean, I, it's like, you know, I grew up kind of at the tail end of Wade Boggs' career, so he was still, like, a good player when I got into baseball – but he wasn't, you know, I didn't, I wasn't around for like his nine win season in 87. I was seven years, six years old at that point. Uh, so I saw kind of like aging Wade Boggs, but I remember him and, you know, this is the memory of a teenager, uh, watching, you know, whatever, a handful of Red Sox games per year. I'm not claiming this is like accurate data, but I remember him hitting the ball hard. Like I don't remember Wade Boggs as a slap hitter. Like he didn't strike out, but he was not just, you know, chopping the ball into the ground and getting infield hits. I remember him as a guy who just like scorching line drives all over the place. So and it must have been uh, that, right? It must. Have, I mean, to some degree, it must have been line drives. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, so he probably benefited right from from his home park because oh, certainly, yeah. It would you know he had a lot of doubles. I think he was among yeah. the league's leader in doubles. You know, yeah. every year, and you know sometimes those become sim- singles too. And so I'm sure he he benefited from that. But um, yeah, I suppose it. I, well. <laughs> Of course, as you're probably aware there's a there's a Twitter handle, uh, past Fangraphs. Yes. This is what this is one of the uh, past Fangraphs articles I would have liked to see written. What was Wade Boggs's? What is his what is his line drive rate? What would our headline on past Fangraphs be like? Uh, uh, Wade Boggs regression inevitable. <laughs> like this Babbitt is not sustainable. Wade Boggs sell, bad, sell bad. high on Wade Boggs yeah. after his age twenty seven season. <laughs> yeah, well, he he actually debuted, uh, and you can imagine it because I, he he was not a he did not he was not a player I think who possessed a lot of loud tools. Yeah, um, and I, he didn't debut actually until he was twenty four, and he immediately right. turned in a four win season, which yeah. would of course would not have necessarily seemed like a four win season at the time. People were probably yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of like who Wade Boggs is like in today's game, and like maybe it's Joey Votto, right? Like oh, uh, Votto's yeah. never been a huge power guy, but lots of line drives, lots of doubles. You know, consistently high BABIP. Um, Votto maybe has more power than Boggs did, but you know, adjusting for the time and ballpark size and all that. You know, maybe I, I don't think anyone thinks of Joey Votto as a slap hitter, right? Like he had 36 home runs this year. Like he's clearly a strong dude. Um, but it, when you think of like these, you know, control the strike zone and hit just line drives hard all over the field, mm-hmm. that's kind of the guy in today's game that I would think that that I remember Boggs being. Yeah, it, w- it would have to be. I mean, it would have to be someone who's an outlier, right? I mean, because obviously he was, and so it would have to be the, someone like that. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I, I think probably there's some overlap. If if nothing else, there's definitely some overlap between Vado and Boggs uh, approaches, right? Like they're kind of like these. They're like these. F- hitting phenoms right with a like a really strange combination of um hand-eye coordination and also like a like a kind of scholarly interest in hitting to some degree um not to say that wade box was (laughs) behaved like a scholar in every possible way um (laughs) because he's famous for some exploits uh, that involve drinking massive quantities of, of beer for example 
Um, although I guess that's actually a part of uh, university life as well. So it really true, was. Yeah. It really was like importing a college student. <laughs> <laughs> they also like fried chicken. He likes fried chicken. <clears throat> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, Wade Boggs was actually exactly like a college student. Um, where did Wade Boggs go to college? Do you think? Uh, I'm gonna say Haverford. <laughs> it is Haverford. It's, it's yeah, it's Hanford, but actually, I guess he was—he was drafted out of high school. Okay, yeah. So he went to the college of uh, whatever hard knocks is in the minor leagues. Yeah, right. And he was—you must have been there for—he was there for a while, because if he was taken out of high school, as you know, an eighteen-year-old, right? He didn't debut yeah. till just before his twenty-fourth birthday. That's yeah. a long time in the minors, isn't it? For a player, for a player who would go on to be like a, like a pretty obvious one of the best players of all time yeah. in this position. Yeah. Yeah. That would be. I think they weren't so good at evaluating talent back then. Like Edgar Martinez, I think it was the same thing. He didn't like get a starting job until he was twenty six. Like, you know, one of the best DH of all time. No one could really. We're not really sure if this guy's better than, you know, whatever uh, Jim Presley or whoever the third. I would. That would be another uh, study I'd be interested in seeing the players who essentially what played the most maybe minor league games or minor league seasons relative to their actual like their you know their actual production as major leaguers on an annual basis or, you know, prorated to a certain amount. Uh, you can see, like, essentially, like, the biggest evalu- evaluation whiffs where guys yeah. essentially, like, had to constantly prove themselves in order to... Um, I mean, if we think about, like, the best player now, would that be, like, Josh Donaldson, maybe? Yeah, Justin Turner, sort of. I, I don't know how long Justin Turner spent in the... And so, like, Turner, I think, is, like, a totally different thing because he was not good in the minors. <laughs> like, he wasn't good in the majors, right? Like, yeah. that's just a different player. Like, that's not a valuation miss. That's just a guy who changed. So you're talking about a guy who... <clears throat> like, a guy who was good and didn't get a shot. Like, Donaldson... Um, you know, he wasn't Josh Donaldson necessarily, but he was, like, a decent prospect. He was a first-round pick, too, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And, you know, like, whatever. He hit okay in the minor leagues. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he showed some power. You know, he was a catcher, and then he moved to third base and became a pretty good third baseman. Like... Um, I mean, I wouldn't call him like necessarily an evaluative miss of like everyone should have seen Josh Donaldson coming, but he wasn't a bad minor league player. Right. Yeah. Because uh, no, I, I, I do want to ask you about Lance McCullers and what a twenty-eight curveball. Yeah, you want to talk about the World Series? Yeah, I do. Actually, I followed um, during the game during the game seven uh, game seven of the uh, American League Championship Series. I followed your chat, um, which which I might <laughs> might raise the question: Why didn't I participate in the chat? That would raise that question. Yeah, yeah it did. It's because um, we had some – I was actually being rude by following your chat because we had some uh, folks over. So I thought by – I was like, actually, I'm going to work now, everyone. <laughs> I thought that would be very rude. So I decided yeah. just to be mostly rude. Okay. Um, uh, but I did – I know that you watched uh, Lance McCullers with some fascination. Some <laughs> You watched him with some fesh, fascination <laughs> uh, while he – uh, through what, what, what was it ultimately? Was it twenty eight curveballs? Twenty four. Twenty four. Twenty four. Yeah, ultimately. And then I believe you declared afterwards, "R.I.P. Establishing the fastball." Yeah, that was. Uh, I think. I mean, we've been seeing pitchers move away from. I have to throw sixty percent fastballs for a while. Mm-hmm. Not that everyone has Lance McCullers' curveball, but like he just showed you pretty clearly. Like game theory is awesome, but if you have like an unhittable pitch, you don't really need it. Okay. So hold that for one moment. Allow me just to ask you, let's return to this much more pressing analogy regarding state inspections for cars, Dave Cameron. Okay. I asked you one way where the data suggests, where, where, where it seems like the data offers no evidence 
for a for a hypothesis or an idea, and yet it feels like the idea should be true. I want to ask you about the opposite, um, and I have an example for the opposite, which is where the data the data suggests something is true, but it doesn't feel like it should be, right? And the one example I want to bring up because I want to ask what the state of it is currently is like is when pitch framing measure the measurements for pitch framing. Uh, were first developed. I think Mike Fast was responsible for a lot of that research, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. of course, with the Houston Astros. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> um, because I, if I re- recall, the first his like first findings for pitch framing suggested there was like a was it like a five win swing between the, the best and worst catchers, or was it even more than that? Yeah, I think that uh, some of the initial work suggested that like the the. Uh, you know, those career backup catcher types, like Jeff Mathis was actually really good. <laughs> and it was like the guys who had been slagged by his dads forever were actually like some of the best players in baseball. Uh, like maybe like, um, Jose Molina was like a four win catcher. Mm-hmm. And he was making like a million dollars. Right. And, and, and there was, and how many wins did, like, if you added it to his offense, which isn't to say it was doing a lot, but also maybe like what we knew about past balls, you know, like blocking balls, for example, right. and throwing runners out, like, how how much did it appear as though Jose Molina was worse in terms of yeah? Worse? So I actually remember Dan Brooks did a presentation on this at Saber Seminar like four or five years ago, um, and he basically was like, "Look, if we're gonna buy into pitch framing as like a thing, Jose Molina is a twenty million dollar a year player. He gets you know a free he signed like two year contract for total of four million dollars that winter or something like that. And like even the Rays who were like bought into pitch framing more than any other team, you know, they still only gave him like three hundred plate appearances. And like his entire presentation is like." What's the deal? Like, why don't people believe this? And there was no real satisfactory conclusion. Like, it was basically like, yep, everyone agrees that the data is decent and like pitch framing's a real thing and it <laughs> matters, but we don't believe that Jose Molina's that good. And like, no one would really tell you why. Right. Other than just like, you know, we're skeptical of the data. But like, they aren't totally skeptical of the data. They were signing Jose Molina. There were teams who wanted Jose Molina and there were teams who wanted, you know, all these kind of guys who couldn't hit and, you know, they wanted Jeff Mathis who's still hanging around. Like, you know, it's not that teams don't think this is a real skill, but they clearly didn't believe in the magnitude of the skill. The magnitude or, I mean, isn't it possible, like, if the Rays are trying to sign Jose Molina, right? They identify Jose Molina as the best at this. And yeah. all they have to do is offer... A they, dollar more than... Yeah, they yeah. just have to top the, yeah. the, the second best offer, right? Right. And Yeah, I mean, there wasn't, like, a real huge market for pitch framing. And that's changed a little bit. Like, Russell Martin got, what, $80 million and... Brian McCann got $90 million. Like, those guys definitely got helped by their receiving value. Um, but I think uh, even today, like, Yosemite Grandal rates as a really good framer. The Dodgers have benched him in the postseason. Like, you know, I think Travis Sochik has been talking about this for a couple of years. Like, if you believe the framing numbers, Yosemite Grandal is a top 10 major league player. And he's he's lost his job as the World Series, as the Dodgers advance in the postseason to Austin Barnes, who's not a bad pitch framer himself. But, you know, like, the idea of you know, name another top 10 player who could possibly just be replaced in the postseason by Austin Barnes. Like, right. It doesn't, you know, no one no one actually believes just Monty Grandal is a top 10 player is kind of the point. But 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 again, you have to, right, so and that, that's the point of this, right? No one really believes it, but there's not, there's not like a compelling, it just, because it's because he doesn't seem like a top 10 player, right? I mean, it's hard to watch a guy, like, yeah, lefties, he goes into these, like, pretty long slumps. Um, he's not good at other parts of catching, like, um, 
pitchers really don't like throwing the ball to him very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so he does enough other things where it's like, oh yeah, he's a, you know, part-time platoon catcher. He's, whatever, he's an okay player. I think like we, you know, Fangraph swore doesn't include pitch framing. We have him as a two to three win player for the last three years. I think that feels about right to a lot of people. It's like, yeah, he's fine. You're, if he's money Grindall as your starting catcher, you're, you're not killing your team, but you know, he's not a superstar. But then if you add in the framing, he's a six or seven win player and, and no one buys that. No one buys it, yeah. Yeah, it's just, uh, there's a disconnect, I guess. Yeah. But it, Andrew Freeman, of course, who was, well, he was, what, GM of the, the Rays when they acquired Jose Molina, right? Uh, I believe he was. Yeah, but. I mean, he is also, the, he's also in charge of the team that now has Yosemite Grandal, so. Yeah. Obviously. But I mean, like, I think if, if, if the market believed that Grandal was, you know, good, then uh, Andrew Friedman would not have been able to get him for Matt Kemp. Right. Okay. All right, let, now, let, let us move on now to uh, to talk about Lance McCullers, right? And I guess, what, what I mean, the whole uh, Yankees-Astros series would make sense. But uh, <clears throat> first of all, Houston Astros, uh, they utilize a strategy, perhaps perhaps not entirely on purpose, but they utilize a strategy that they use throughout the rest of their minor leagues, which is to uh, tandem tandem starters, essentially. Yeah. Uh, one, you know, Charlie Moore goes five innings, Lance McCullers goes four innings. Um, Lance McCullers, how how is it? Uh, no, no, I think we discussed uh, we discussed last time we spoke that <clears throat> McCullers recorded the highest curveball rate this year. So obviously, what among was it among qualifiers? Was it among some type of pitcher? Among starting among starting pitchers, pitchers, right? So there's obviously something special about this pitch. Um, how special does a pitch have to be, right? I mean, if you see the guy who throws it the most often anyway, figure well, he, perhaps he's an exception to the rule. How special does a pitch? have to be in order to be able to throw it 24 times consecutively? Well, I mean, I think we know that there's, like, some barrier, especially as a reliever, where you don't need a second pitch, right? Like Mariano Rivera threw one pitch for 15 years, was the best player of all time, best player of all time in his position. Kenley Jansen, like, throws a slider sometimes, but he's, like, mostly just cutters, um, which is the same pitch Rivera threw. Uh, so maybe there's something to, like, that specific pitch where if you just have a really good cutter with movement and velocity and command... You don't need anything else. Um, we've never seen that with a breaking ball guy, uh, and I don't know if it's like possible to be able to locate your breaking ball with that kind of consistency where you get enough called strikes to just throw it every time. Um, but we've seen it with fastball guys like Bartolo Colon basically just throws a fastball. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I think we know that there's some level at which you can command a pitch in such a way where you're changing speeds, changing locations, changing eye level, to where it can be kind of different pitches to different players, but it's basically the same grip and the same release. And um, I think we've seen that you can live on one pitch if it's good enough and you can command it well enough. We just don't know if you can do that with a breaking ball. Uh, Lance McCullers suggests that for at least one very particular outing uh, where you don't want to give up runs in Game 7 of the ALCS, uh, you can basically abandon everything but your curveball if your curveball is as good as McCullers. Right, and but she, you know, he's got a top five curveball in baseball. There's very few guys who have better curveballs than he does. And he kept throwing. Do you do anything? This might be a question for Doctor Alan Nathan. Uh, yeah, uh, did, we should maybe just have him uh, host the podcast. What what, what happens? What happens? <laughs> what is the? Cause obviously, you mentioned like there was essentially no use, of, no no use of game theory whatsoever. Uh, I mean, at a certain point, it had to have been McCullers could have just told them he was. You know, the Yankees batters, he was going to throw a curveball. I think at some point, Brian McCann stopped putting down signs. Like, 
I don't, I can't, I can't, I haven't gone frame by frame through this, but uh, certainly watching the game, I think someone made a comment that, like, isn't McCann even giving signs anymore? And then I watched and I didn't. Um, and there might have been a guy on base at that point or something, or it might have just been after a mountain conversation. But I do think McCann basically just fell in, like, curveballs till your arm falls off. It, and it's not as though McCullers really has a poor fastball, right? I mean, he throws 95 miles per hour. I mean, he throws hard. His fastball is okay, but it's not great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't necessarily understand the uh, intricacies of pitching mechanics well enough to explain this. Maybe we should just have Brian Bannister on the podcast at some point. But I saw him and Brandon McCarthy talking on Twitter a little bit after the game where, like, McCarthy had pointed out, or Bannister, I think, pointed out, like, of course he threw all curveballs. His other pitches suck. And McCarthy was like, does anyone know why his other pitches suck? And Bannister made some comment about the type of pitcher he is and where his arm is in relation to his release point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in terms of like McCullers throws 95, but it's not a good 95. Like, you know, he's a shorter guy, so he doesn't have effective velocity where he's getting extension and releasing it closer to the plate. Like his, his fastball plays down relative to how hard he Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, I, I mean, this is logical, although I don't know if it's correct. Are we to believe that whatever forces his, his fastball to play down is that, the same thing that allows, that sort of benefits his curveball? I don't know. I mean, like, if you think, like, you know, so height is probably the main thing that's holding his fastball back. Like, if he was 6'8", his fastball would be awesome, yeah. but he's, what, 5'11", or something? Mm-hmm. Like, he's a shorter guy. So I don't know if that, I don't know of any evidence that shows, like, shorter guys have better curveballs. I don't I don't know why that would be true. Yeah. Um, I think he just happens to have a particularly good breaking ball. Okay. Um, is there... No, I know that you know. Sometimes we have these moments um, that seem to illustrate, as you as you noted, uh, this, this was the death of uh, establishing the fastball, which might uh, be a case. Now we spoke last week, of course, about the moment perhaps when David Ortiz was carried away by CC uh, Sabathia's start, thus compelling him to suggest that Sabathia was the ace of the generation. Or of his generation, is this the case? Do you think Dave Kimmer, were you were were carried away uh, in the moment, and you decided to to suggest that uh, that establishing the fastball is dead at this particular moment, or do you think it was just another point, a particularly compelling point, to to suggest that what has largely been regarded as some kind of um, immutable truth in baseball does not. Uh, does not necessarily hold up to to scrutiny, at least in some cases. I mean, hyperbole is a perfectly valid literary tool, so <laughs> I'm not going to uh, apologize. It's not an analytical tool, though. No, yeah, well, you know, I don't think Twitter is where you go to analyze things, really. Like, uh, a, you know, 25-character tweet after a game is uh, shouldn't be taken as, like, objective uh, mm-hmm. research. Mm-hmm. You're not going to uh, present that tweet but, at Sabre Seminar next year? Yeah, no, I'm probably yeah. not. Uh but I think, you know, like, the fastball, the idea that you have to pitch off of your fastball, I think, is declining, right? And, like, McCullers is a guy who's basically said, like, my I, I set up everything else with my curveball. My curveball is my best pitch, and it's my first pitch. It's, like, it's my number one. Um, and I think we're going to probably see the trend towards that, where, like, the idea that every pitcher in baseball has to, you know, throw... 40 to 60% fastballs will probably change. We're going to have guys in baseball who throw 20% fastballs or 15% fastballs, and they have, you know, sliders or changeups or cutters or whatever it is. There's some secondary pitch that wouldn't generally have been considered a primary pitch uh, will just become the thing they throw the most often, and they'll be quality starting pitchers. Like, they might not have... 
They might not last. Like, we don't know, like, the long-term health impacts of just throwing curveballs every pitch. Um, but I think we're going to see that guys who can make it into Major League Baseball say, oh, my fastball's not great. I'm not going to throw it that often. <clears throat> uh, now, you, you mentioned there the long-term health impacts. I, th- I saw um, multiple voices suggesting that, uh, you know, that this – you know these four innings thrown by Lance McCullers were essentially like they were creating a you know his future Tommy John surgery. They were making it inevitable, uh, but, but at the same time, and I know that you know historically that uh, that elbow injuries have been have been regarded or have been regarded or that breaking balls have been regarded as the cause of elbow injuries. But I I think that also. Especially like I know you know writes about this with some frequency. It seems as though fastballs and velocity um, are perhaps more to blame than one might have previously thought. What is the sort of status on that, um, and what we know about what does and doesn't cause injury in terms of pitch pitch cycle? Yeah, we don't know. I mean, the status is ignorance. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, to- you know, total ignorance. Not total, but most mostly ignorance. Uh, the guys at ASMI have done good research, I know Tao Body and a bunch of others have done research on this, and like, trying to measure the load and the, you know, the torque of your elbow while throwing a ball at a certain velocity, or throwing a certain pitch, or, you know, certain mechanics. Like, there, I think there's things we can say, like, that's bad, don't do that, um, but we, I don't think we can say that's good, do this, and you'll prevent injury. So I think we can point it like, um, Although people have been pointing at Alex Wood forever, being like, that's bad, don't do that, and he hurt his arm running the bases. Uh, but in general, I think the, the research allows us to kind of say, like, you know, these are particularly stressful mechanics that can lead to significant problems. Avoid doing this. But I don't think we have any real ability to tell anyone, if you throw in this certain way or you throw this kind of pitch this often, that your arm will stay healthy. Like, we're not there. Okay. All right. Uh, I just want to ask you, to, before we go, two questions about Aaron Judge. Um, Aaron, now you mentioned earlier in uh, the program that, uh, by and large, hitters, uh, batters hit better with runners on base, right? Uh, across the league, yeah. batters hit batters are better with runners on base. Um, Aaron Judge was not better uh, with, with runners on base this year. I'm just gonna. He was roughly 90% better than league average in terms of offense, uh, with the bases empty this year. With men on base, he was 55% better. Obviously, the latter. Still good. Um, that latter metric. What's that? Still good. Still good. Yeah, yeah still good. But the, the here's the thing: the way that the clutch metric is calculated. Yeah. Right. It, it essentially it it uses the player's own baselines. Yeah. And if when so when Aaron Judge is hitting. Worse with men on base, worse with men in scoring position, worse in high leverage situations overall than he is in low leverage situations. It makes it, it, it makes it seem as though, at least again by this one metric, which is maybe not asking answering the question we are really asking. Um, it makes it seem like he's the least clutch player in baseball this year. Yeah, I mean I know Travis has written about this a few times or several times, yeah. and I like Travis a lot, so. Disclaimer, Travis does really good work. Uh, I think the notion that Aaron Judge is unclutch has been, um, uh, I don't, I don't buy it. <laughs> like, if you, if you just, like, look at his numbers, like, his ISO with bases empty is 349. With the men on base, it's 337. So, didn't stop hitting for power. His strikeout rate, 
34% with bases empty, 27% with men on base. So he doesn't strike out too much. His walk rate went from 20% to 18%, whatever, that's the same. Like, the reality is the his bases empty Babbitt was 422, and his men on base Babbitt was 298. Which one of those two do you think is real? Right. Right. So so the point is that – the, the point is that a flaw, probably a flaw in this in this metric, right – is simply the fact that um, that a the this, the samples for the high leverage data are pretty small, and b it can suggest that a player who's really good is quote unquote bad in the clutch just because he's not as good, not as good. I mean, really, probably the worst clutch player, right, was Kevin Pillar. Uh, he had a five WRC plus. In high leverage situations, that's probably the least clutch player, right? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, he's also just not that – he's also he's not great. not that good, right? I guess right. the question would be like, would we change our opinion of Aaron Judge's clutchiness if he had just hit worse when the game was out of the line, right? Or if like – because like a 422 Babbitt is luck, right? Like not mm-hmm. all 100% luck. He hits the ball hard, but like it's mostly luck. Like no one can sustain a 422 Babbitt. So if Aaron Judge had run a 320 Babbitt with you know uh, no one on base – would we change our opinion of what he did when there were guys on base? And if we would, then we're, are we measuring it wrong? Are we using the data incorrectly? Probably, right? Because, like, what he does when the score is 10 to 1 shouldn't really impact our idea of what he does when the score is 3 to 2. Okay, right. Um, last question, also by Aaron Judge. I had uh, I had what I considered... Um, uh, sometimes I have... Like, I have... Uh, <laughs> I have thoughts... What, so first of all, I have thoughts. That's that's the step number one in this. Uh, frequently, I the better part of me, I think, lo- reviews these thoughts and uh, and uh, I judge as many of them to be stupid thoughts. Okay, yeah. so I, a thought will occur inside of me, and then I will inspect it. And frequently, I'll say, "Well, that was a dumb thought." And here's a dumb thought I had, which was <clears throat> watching Lance McCullers pitch to Aaron Judge during the uh, during one of those four innings, right? Um, and I think I think he struck him out on three straight curveballs. Um, I don't know if it was three straight, but it was definitely three curveballs. No, I think it was three straight, yeah. Three straight, and and yeah. and all of them were you know sort of that lower outside corner, and Judge swung and missed pretty badly at all three of them. And the the thought that I had in my head that I did not particularly care for was a guy can't be MVP and look that bad and. At any point, really, and especially in an, especially in an important moment, how how ugly, how wrong headed is that thought that occurred that happened in my head? Very wrong. Okay. <laughs> I mean, right. Chris Sale was the best pitcher in the American League this year, or you know, second best behind Corey Kluber or whatever. They were very close, and Chris Sale gave up four home runs in five innings or something like that, right? Like uh, he had a you know he had some really terrible starts in the second half. Uh, Chris Sale gave up the. The game tying home run, I think, mm-hmm. in, the, in the game eventually the Red Sox lost to end their season. Um, like, you know, Clayton Kershaw has had some really bad postseason games. He gave up a grand slam to Matt Adams, who was a not very good left handed hitter a couple years ago. Um, you know, the best players in baseball regularly fail in very big moments. Yeah, I, well, that's a good point. And I guess, what, did, we, did you mention Max Scherzer at all? I didn't mention Max Scherzer. But because Max Scherzer is also a very good pitcher, you might be aware of this. Very good pitcher. Uh, he had a very difficult uh, relief. He came out of the bullpen and was garbage. Yeah, versus the Chicago Cubs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, yeah. So, so it was a so just an idiot's thought is what you're saying. Just a real dumb. Well, you had the thought, so. Yes, I did. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to yeah. say. I can't. I yeah. but the thought. I feel like it was involuntary, and so at least I thought I exercised some sort of wisdom by there by not regarding it as a, a an opinion. It was merely a thought that occurred inside me, and then I examined it and I said, "This may not pass muster, Dave Cameron." Yeah, I don't think it passes muster. Okay. Um. If oh, as a dad, I will cultivate a joke where I. Instead of saying passes muster, I will say that jo- that joke does not pass the mustard. Yeah, I think something. every person in existence has thought of that joke before you. Okay, very good. Hey, even people who don't speak English understand that joke. Let us now uh, conclude the program. Dave Cameron, you have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio for this week. I am excited to hear that. Okay, all right. Uh, thank you, Dave Cameron. I will say. You're welcome, Carson Sestouli. That's how you will respond. Uh, I will say that has been Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs.com. I am Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.